Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the presentation from our July product event, where you'll hear from John Perkins. John is currently a senior product manager at Route. John's presentation delves into how success is rarely convenient, simple, and easy. It takes work. And how it's achieved is highly relative to the situation you find yourself in as a PM and UX professional. A big thanks to Route for hosting this meetup. So now, let's hear John's talk, Undress the Mess. Uh, While I do that, let me apologize for the coughing that will inevitably occur (laughs) throughout the presentation here. Uh, I'll try to keep it to a minimum, but I got the flu a couple weeks ago, luckily tested negative, so good good on the corona front, but uh, cough is still lingering. Um, yeah, it's it's sort of surreal to be in front of uh, so many of you, but I'm like just sitting alone in my basement, so like these virtual events are super interesting, and I think it, it sort of speaks to our tech landscape, the environment that we live in now where connection is is so easy, information is more distributable than ever before. Um, We've got blog posts and meetup groups and webinars, podcasts, and they allow us to really tell some interesting stories and and to share of our experience. Um, But the volume of stories can start to become an issue and it can create a hyper-distracted society uh, with a short attention span. And we start to put uh, a lot of value on the simple things. Uh, and you know we're afraid that we're gonna miss that key insight that could change the game. So we want to read everything, but we don't have time. So we just try to boil it down to something very simple and straightforward. And um, John Cutler, who I consider a, a, a thought leader in the product space, uh, tweeted in February, uh, and that tweet became the inspiration for this talk. Uh, let me check real quick. Can you guys see the the screen? All right. Sit in my screen sharing. All right. Yep. That's good. Okay, cool, cool. Just want to make sure. Um, in in this tweet, uh, Cutler really tries to emphasize that we should be telling stories instead of prescribing answers. Um, and he he includes a couple of visuals in his tweet that I've sort of modified here just for design consistency. But um, the first visual is sort of an anecdotal representation of what we hear when we tell stories. Uh, we hear a lot about the dysfunction that exists in our organizations, and it can be gossipy and scintillating and sort of fun to talk about. And, you know, when we're facing frustration or friction and we feel like our control over a situation is limited, it's real easy to deflect a bit and put the blame on something else, uh, something external, and, and really just tell those stories. Uh, we hear a lot of stories that make it look really easy as well. A simple prescriptive list of what to do to be successful is much easier to write and much easier to digest. Um, What we don't hear very often, or at least what Cutler suggests, is is the messy, complex, almost anti-stories. And they don't have a super clear or universally universally applicable thesis. They're harder to tell, and they often require a bit of chewing to digest them. the, the second visual is Cutler's take on what reality actually looks like, what's actually happening, um, the stories that are getting created. Uh, dysfunction exists, sure, and there can be value in telling these stories, um, but primarily as cautionary tales. Uh, you know, we have to be careful 
not to let those juicy stories become something of a car accident that we can't look away from or become an echo chamber of angry people or frustrated product managers or designers just shouting like, oh, me too, that, that sucks, my boss is like that too. Um, there are also occasional stories of clear wins. Um, there are some great overarching principles in those stories, but they're likely very overrepresented in the stories that we tell. Um, reality, in fact, is filled with the good, messy stories that illustrate uh, that success is complex. It's not convenient or simple or easy to replicate. It takes a ton of work, and how it's achieved is highly relative to the context that you're in. There's a myriad of factors that make up your situation as a product manager or product designer, and that context that you're in is almost completely unique, and so the solutions that can lead to success for you are equally unique. And Cutler suggests, and I agree, uh, hence this talk, that we need to talk more about the messy stuff. It more closely represents reality for the rest of us. And I plan to share some of the messy personal experiences that I've had in my career as a product manager. And I don't do so as an example of something that you should necessarily try to replicate, um, but rather, I'm going to try to start some new conversations in your mind is, is what I hope to do uh, or in your professional life. And maybe you'll start asking yourself and others around you some new or different questions. Uh, and it might help you approach your situation from a fresh angle uh, or give you more insight into sort of like what conflicts you're actually experiencing that you, you weren't noticing. And my hope in the end is that it's going to lead to more great, messy stories that you can go and tell. Um, before we get into that, I just want to talk a little bit about my background. Um, so I started in product back in 2011 uh, when I created SceneNet, which was essentially a, a social network for movie fans. It was Goodreads for movies uh, with a couple of friends, uh, one engineer, one designer, and then I was CEO slash product. We raised six figures based on the idea alone, and we scaled up to tens of thousands of users in a pretty short time. Um, but as most inexperienced founders uh, discover the hard way, I made the product that I wanted to see in a vacuum. Uh, it was based almost entirely on gut decisions, and we did not achieve product market fit, uh, nor did we have sufficient traction to keep the business alive, and I learned some priceless lessons along the way. Um, through my fundraising efforts with CNAT, I became good friends with uh, a gentleman by the name of Adam Lieb, who is a young CEO and entrepreneur in Seattle, Washington, and he invited me to come over see product at Duxter.com, which was a social network for gamers that he had built with a handful of others. Uh, I stayed with that group for four and a half years. Three of those, I was entirely remote. Uh, we went through some substantial pivots uh, in my time there. We started out as the social network where we built the largest Clash of Clans and World of Tanks communities online. Uh, we pivoted after we went through Techstars in 2015 in Seattle to Community as a Service, where we uh, built communities reaching millions of gamers. It was more plug-and-play forums. Uh, and then we, as, as influencer marketing became more of a thing, especially in the gaming industry, we saw an opportunity and built the, the marketing platform for PC and console games and have since executed hundreds of brand campaigns, totaling tens of millions in campaign dollars. and facilitated tens of thousands of influencer sponsorships along the way. Um, for me, that experience was, was crazy, number one, because I was remote, uh, but number two, because I was the product department. Uh, we didn't have anybody design-wise, uh, 
research-wise, anything. It was, it was just me seeing every opportunity through from inception to design to scoping for engineering, QA, and release. And so it was a very broad role, um, but it taught me a ton sort of about, about the whole process. Uh, then in August of 2017, I shifted away from the startup world, uh, spent a couple of years at local e-commerce company Jane.com, uh, which if you don't know is a successful boutique marketplace for SMBs to sell products online. Um, it was for me the first opportunity that I had to work as a product manager within the concept of experience teams, sort of like the Spotify model, where we had full stack teams uh, that were focused on different parts of the business. Um, and I learned a lot about the messy parts of scaling from a product org or scaling a product org from just the CEO and maybe a designer and a couple engineers to multiple full stack teams with dedicated resources uh, on each team. Uh, and then in June of last year, uh, I fulfilled one of my entrepreneurial bucket list items and was able to join uh, a hyper growth startup at route.com uh, at the ground level. Uh, I was employee number 30 something. I was our second PM hire, and we've now scaled up to over 220 employees. Uh, we're seeing exponential month over month growth in revenue, and there's no signs of slowing down. And the rate at which we've scaled has definitely led to lots of messy experiences for me. Uh, to give you a little bit of context on Route's story, it was an idea formed from years of working with e-commerce merchants. Uh, it was started in 18, or 2018 as a company in Evan Walker's living room. Evan is our CEO and co-founder. And essentially, we have the vision to organizationally transform the e-commerce experience by, on one hand, trying to be Amazon for everyone else. And what I mean by that is standardizing the consumer experience across the web for all merchants that aren't Amazon. And then on the other hand, trying to uh, execute on what we call Pinterest for shopping, which is a next-gen product discovery uh, backed by actual purchase data that we get from merchants. So sort of utility and then some, some nice uh, function features. So that's a little bit about my background. I've used the term messy a few times already, and I wanna just add some clarity really quick to what I mean by that. Um, to me, things are messiest when they're just untidy. There's no clear path to victory. Uh, we often get faced with dilemmas and battles and decisions that are fraught with uncertainty, and there's multiple possible right answers. Uh, product work is not a prescribed list of things to do. It is not what we should objectively do next. Uh, it's actually doing the work to understand the situation and the environment that we're in at any given time and making what we think are the best investments into one or a few of the multiple opportunities that exist to improve the business. The mess is represented by things like competing priorities or differing opinions or conflicting research. And today what I plan to do is talk through four or five, kind of depending on the time, uh, high level categories of dilemma that I've run into multiple times throughout my career, and then dive into some specific examples of those dilemmas uh, manifesting as, as conflicts uh, along the way. And Jeremy, if we get close on time, if we're about 10 minutes, if you wouldn't mind just shouting out, so I'm kind of keeping track. Um, oh, yeah. the, the first thing that I want to talk about is one of the, the most fundamental battles that you have to deal with as an organization. And it's the battle between product market fit and your larger vision. Uh, we often hear about minimum viable product, uh, which is essentially your product providing uh, value to the intended market at the most basic level possible. 
Uh, it's the most basic representation of product market fit. Uh, but rarely, if ever, do we enter the game or start a company with only the most basic version of product market fit in our minds. Uh, there's almost always a more aspirational goal driving the product forward. And so the core dilemma here is, is another way to say it, short-term investments versus long-term investments. Uh, one great example of this at Route, <coughs> excuse me, is our package protection product uh, called Route Protect. And merchants can easily install our Route app on their e-commerce platform or do a direct API integration with us that allows them to offer package protection to their consumers for a cost of roughly 1% of the cart value. And consumers who purchase Route Protect can then file a claim directly with Route if their package gets lost, damaged, or stolen during transit. And this helps reduce costs for merchants and their customer support departments, but then also provides a faster, more streamlined experience for consumers that encounter issues post-purchase. And we have very clear product market fit with this product and it's fueled Route's incredible growth to date. So in short, it's working. Um, the level of success that we've had uh, has also attracted several competitors to the space. And package protection in and of itself is not, you know, IP or particularly novel. So, you know, we, we need to lean into what's working, but at the same time, we have to be thinking about building the moat at the same time that we're building the castle. Uh, to add some complexity to that, Route was never intended to be a quote-unquote insurance company. Uh, we're a tech company. And as I described earlier, we're working to organizationally transform the e-commerce experience for both merchants and consumers. And it's a lofty goal, but there's a great deal of potential revenue to be earned with that grand vision. Um, but there's also a great deal of revenue being generated today by Route Protect. And so this leads to a constant tension um, between supporting the current fuel for the business and making sure that we can sort of fund our efforts, but also pushing ourselves toward the grander vision for Route. Uh, to illustrate this, this dilemma in a slightly different way, uh, I often compare our current situation at Route to Slack back in 2014. Um, at the time, inter-office communication as a market was not exactly a thing. Uh, products like HipChat and Yammer and others did exist, but um, you know, people and, and people use them to communicate more efficient more efficiently than they could with traditional means like uh, meetings or email. But these solutions weren't ubiquitous. It wasn't something that that everybody or every tech company was using. It was more of a niche market. Um, according to Stuart Butterfield's memo to the company at launch, he's the CEO of Slack, um, they had the intention to initiate organizational transformation for their future customers. Uh, they had a full intention to change the world with their product. And they've objectively succeeded in that one small, almost imperceptible update at a time. Um, in Route's case, e-commerce tools like uh, post-purchase experience, package tracking, insurance, product recommendations, all of that have definitely existed for quite some time. But in the same way that Slack defined a new market by leveraging the latest technology to create a sublime user experience, Route is attempting to more or less consolidate all of the disparate siloed e-commerce experiences that exist into one transformational experience that can change the world. Contrast that with what we could be doing, which is, you know, for lack of a better term, milking the product we have product market fit with until there's nothing left. Um, in my mind, that's sort of similar to a gold rush, where at some point, the gold is going to run out, it's all going to get mined. And the question that I think we, we need to ask ourselves is, 
you know, do we eventually want to be out of work gold miners that are rich for a generation or whatever, or do we want to build an empire with the resources that we get from those efforts? Um, the last manifestation of this battle and uh, this dilemma to me is between keeping existing customers happy and reducing churn in that cohort while still investing in the next level of the product. Um, the slice of the market that we currently resonate with most at route falls more on the lower order volume, lower brand awareness side of things. Uh, so it's a little bit more long tail there. Uh, and in order to fulfill our vision, uh, we need to provide a much different type of value to the larger brands of the e-commerce world. And this leads to some relatively easy wins with our current merchant base getting deprioritized in favor of the next gen product. But it also means that some next gen features get bumped to keep key merchants from churning and to keep that revenue coming in. And it's definitely a, a tight rope walk. Uh, the second mess I wanna talk through uh, is the balance between being informed and innovating. And I realize that these two terms aren't mutually exclusive, uh, but there's definitely a tension that exists between them when it comes to making investments and placing bets. Um, we understand the importance of using data and customer feedback, analytics, and other signals to drive the product forward. Uh, they can provide great insights and lead to impactful improvements to the product. Uh, they can also provide a sometimes deceptive level of confidence and perceived certainty around which investments will have the largest impact on the business. Um, decisions, based on, made on, or decisions made based on what we know uh, tend to be much more reactive in nature. And to be truly innovative, we sometimes have to look beyond what the data says or at least notice uh, the more underappreciated side of what the data are telling us. Um, principles like curiosity and intuition and courage arguably provide an even greater level of impact on the business in the long run. And what we think, if properly implemented and measured, can lead to significant innovations that would never come about if we just followed the path of certainty the whole time. Uh, another way to look at this is to ask, are we building faster horses or are we building automobiles? Um, either could be the right answer at any given time. Uh, during my time at Duxter and Innervate, uh, the social network for gamers that I talked about earlier, our site users were capital G gamers. And if you aren't aware, that can be a very vocal and a very opinionated group of people. Um, and we were attempting to build a new, better experience for gamers uh, to connect than the traditional sort of 90s style forums that were so wildly popular with that market. And as we made attempts to push the experience to a new standard, we often heard feedback that dictated we should just build forums into our social network. It's what users were familiar with and the feature set was straightforward and well-established. Um, and while we lost some users because they didn't get exactly what they wanted, uh, we also attracted hundreds of thousands of new gamers to our site by providing a completely unique game-centric experience for games like Clash of Clans and, and World of Tanks. And ultimately, certain business model issues forced us to pivot away from that innovative idea, but the conflict of what the customer wants and the desire to create something new and impactful is a very real mess uh, that exists. Uh, the next big mess I've identified is, is something I'm referring to as realism versus idealism. Uh, this isn't necessarily the, the perfect name for the dilemma, but it's meant to contrast how on one hand, we're working in an environment where the time and resources and scope of a project are, are limited. And uh, less time to complete something means that we need more resources or a smaller scope. 
And if we have fewer resources, that means that we, uh, you know, it's going to take longer or we need, we need to reduce the scope. Uh, if it's a larger scope, then we need more time to do it or more resources to do it. And so these are sort of like laws that exist in the product development universe, um, but we still don't have a perfect system for quantifying or predicting the time element or the resources element or the scope element. They're, they're just sort of always in flux. On the other hand, uh, there's always going to be a need for a healthy injection of idealism into the process because that helps keep everyone honest and helps push the team to do more than they think they're capable of. It's uh, definitely an interesting dynamic that, that we'll dive into here for a second. Um, one way that this is manifested at Route is we have an executive team that's very involved and they're regularly pushing our product development teams to ship significant updates to the product uh, basically on their timeline. Um, these updates are based on high-level feedback, uh, market trends, certain time-based factors like the upcoming holiday season, which is huge in e-commerce. Um, but these, these are also very well-informed and always relevant and not always based on, you know, quote-unquote real estimates from our teams. Uh, they tend to be much higher level at the objective level. And so any timeline estimates that are sort of getting passed down are much more finger-in-the-wind best guesses. Uh, Contrast that with a much more methodical approach where every initiative is heavily researched by the product development teams prior to setting any timelines or expectations around delivery. Uh, opportunities would get broken up across teams and dependencies would get clearly identified. Agreements would be made, ideation would happen, designs would get shown to customers and epics would get broken down into stories with well-defined requirements and you know, clear sizes and they'd get assigned to sprints. Um, the realist approach in, in those two examples is likely to produce a much more accurate time estimate, but the added rigor also has a clear cost. And sometimes the idealistic goal that drives the team to move quickly can get us to the next level sooner than we otherwise would. Uh, other times it can end up creating more problems that end up costing much more than whatever was gained in moving faster. So uh, it's, it's kind of a, a, an interesting balance. Uh, shifting gears just a little, uh, have you ever been chatting with a member of the sales team as an example about a customer request and they say something to the effect of, uh, oh, that's easy, right? That's like a five minute fix. It's standing a checkbox, right? Um, for me, it's something that I hear often in various meetings and, and Slack messages. Um, but I also see it sometimes in product development, you know, inside of our teams. Uh, one example would be sprint commitments uh, that reflect more of what we want or hope to get done by the end of the sprint, as opposed to what we can commit to getting done by the end of the sprint. Uh, in this case, idealism can end up blinding us to the parts of the product that might be affected uh, by a simple change. Um, we can end up in, the, in a bit of a yak shave. Um, if you don't know what a yak shave is, uh, if you've never heard that term, I'm going to share a quick video that perfectly illustrates it, just because you might be falling asleep at this point in the presentation. So hopefully the sound came through on that all right. Uh, but yeah, what does it look like I'm doing? Uh, sometimes that's a, something we have to answer with when, pe when people are asking why it's taking so long to get those, those simple fixes out. Um, but, but sort of conversely to that, we can also fall into the trap of, of sandbagging on our estimates to ensure that, that we hit our time commitments 100% uh, of the time. And, and that can also keep us from reaching our full potential. Um, you know, we never want to get in a situation where work that was committed to in a sprint got completed early and instead of pulling in more work, a team member just coasts uh, through the last day or two of the sprint. 
Um, the last example I'll hit on here is centered around optimizing team velocity or, or output. And as I mentioned earlier, we scaled from 30-ish people at route to over 220 now. And to the idealist, uh, or sorry, and, and, and on the product development side specifically, we've, we've grown from you know, half a dozen developers and two PMs to more than 50 developers and seven PMs. And to the idealist, that means that our output uh, should have grown by seven to 10% or seven to 10 X, I mean. Um, but the realist would tell you that as teams scale, you get diminishing returns from each individual contributor. And it's important to talk through this because there will almost always be a cry for more resources as teams frantically work to meet deadlines and expectations. Um, but there's also something to be said for how a team functions and the effect that that, that has on productivity and efficiency. Um, for almost my entire first year at Route, we were working with just two PMs, uh, myself and Taylor Fisher. And you know, to be fair, for those that know Taylor, he's worth uh, three PMs just by himself. Um, but we were only able to keep up with the demands of the business by optimizing our process along the way. Uh, we surely could have scaled up our PM team more quickly, but the point stands that the right answer for you might look very different than the right answer for another organization uh, when considering how to optimize your team's output. Um, the next myth mess uh, here that I want to talk is, is one of the most interesting to me. Uh, and there are so many arguments for each side at any given time. Um, it's sort of the fight between slow and steady wins the race and move fast and break things. Um, I mentioned in my time at Jane that I learned a lot about scaling a product development org. Um, and we had a chunk of roughly three, four months at Jane where we took a very serious look at our process, our team structure, and the work that we were doing. And everything was put under a microscope. And one of the things that became very apparent was we were asking quite a lot of our product managers. And for the record, I think this is very common across our organizations, but in our case, it was centered around two parts of the job. There was the strategy and the execution. Uh, on one hand, our product managers were expected to strategically identify the most impactful opportunities um, through research, making the case for which of those opportunities was the right one to work on next, getting executive buy-in, facilitating ideation activities with stakeholders, um, coming up with potential solutions, multiple potential solutions that could address the opportunity, assessing those solutions, doing more research, building tech approaches, um, getting executive approval on the direction, finalizing the high fidelity design, and then once those are finalized, creating a shared understanding across all team members. And uh, then on the execution side, there was an expectation to facilitate breaking down that work into user stories and documenting all the known requirements and working with engineering to size the stories and prioritizing the backlog and leading sprint planning and building a release or a communication plan and um, you know, setting expectations properly across the organization with regard to release and scope, participating in the QA process and ensuring the solution was properly deployed per the release plan, assessing the impact of the solution over time and iterating accordingly. And then through all of that, triaging all the incoming bugs and feature requests that get added to the backlog. So our product managers were being asked to apply a heavy level of rigor through discovery and scoping, but then also being asked to ensure that, that engineers had several, several sprints worth of work in the backlog, fully refined and ready to go. And they were never without product work to execute on. Um, in my experience, keeping engineers busy in that situation will always trump the rigor in the deeper research every time. Uh, 
Of course, that makes sense. You don't want to have a team of developers sitting on their hands, but you also want to make sure that they're working on the right project with the right scope at the right time. Um, just as sort of a, a comment at Jane, what we decided to do was um, break our full stack experience teams into three PM UX uh, pairs, each with a clear focus and strategy and some resource uh, research resources. And then the engineering teams got broken into two full stack teams that rotated to whichever project was up next. And then we had one product owner that was involved very early in the strategy to understand the scope and um, manage execution and release uh, through to the end. So no matter how you try to do it at your organization, the point is there's gotta be a balance between arriving at the perfect scope and getting work in the hands of the engineering team. And both are vitally important to the success of your org. Um, at Route, we're heavily reliant on our technical integrations with uh, various e-commerce platforms like Shopify, WooCommerce, Magento, and others. Um, this, these integrations allow merchants to easily add Route to their online store. Uh, Route is able to get all the relevant order data that we need to provide tracking updates and fulfill on our vision of, of next-gen product discovery. Uh, and we also facilitate a smooth process to file a claim should any issues arrive uh, based on these integrations. Uh, our ability to scale among the 7.1 million online, online retailers in the world is entirely dependent on our ability to integrate with their platform of choice. So on one hand, we have an incentive to build as many integrations as quickly as we can. Um, some platforms like Shopify are very consistent from merchant to merchant, easier to build on but others are much more custom and support a ton of variability in the types of plugins and augmentations to the out of the box product and can end up causing issues uh, that manifest as tech debt or bugs. Um, so on one hand, the faster we move, the more tech debt and bugs we're creating, but the more we try to minimize that debt, the slower we're scaling up our merchant base. Uh, another aspect of this is centered around the user experience. Uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, with regard to user experience is from the same Stuart Butterfield memo that I referred to earlier when Slack launched in 2014. And in the memo, uh, Stuart Butterfield says, every bit of grace, refinement, and thoughtfulness on our part will pull people along. Every petty irritation will stop them and give the impression that it's not worth it. Uh, I think we can all agree on the importance of the little details in how users experience our products and, and the impact that that can have. But it's also so important, uh, it is so important to pull people along and, and to give them the impression that it's worth it. But it can also be so easy to over-engineer the experience and delay putting value in the hands of the user for too long as we try to minimize friction. And depending on where you are as a business, one of those is gonna be the right answer, uh, potentially both. Uh, in the last part of this rigor versus speed, um, I wanna talk about outcomes versus output, which really could be an entire talk all on its own. Um, but it's the, the battle between measuring success with outcomes versus uh, sheer output. Uh, at startups, especially those that are bringing something completely new to the market, we focus heavily on building the core product or on the output. Um, in the spirit of minimum viable product, I'll just use a simple skateboard example. When skateboards came about, it wasn't about grip tape and the angle of the wood and how loose your trucks are and the bearings and all that. It's just wood, wheels, and trucks, essentially. It was something new. Uh, they wanted to get to market and be able to sell skateboards. And so it was a checklist of things that had to be done. And success was measured by the speed to complete the checklist. 
And you can essentially look at that output as a macro outcome. Uh, at Route, our mobile app uh, has been a great example of that. It's a checklist of things that we wanted to get to market with. The ability to track all of your orders in one place, uh, the ability to file a claim if you have Route Protect. Um, and yeah, there's a much larger vision. There's lots of little details that we wanna add and improve on over time. But the macro outcome was to get that utility uh, product out into the market. Uh, in these examples, there's clear value in measuring success based on output, uh, but there's also a cost to it over the long term. And as the business matures, the product will naturally get more complex. Um, Scott Belsky wrote a book called The Messy Middle, and uh, this quote is from that book, and I'm just going to read it really quick. Uh, the honeymoon phase at the start of a venture is known not only for its boundless energy, but also its remarkable clarity. In the beginning of your journey, simple solutions come easily. But as the product becomes volatile and more problematic, we have the tendency to add complexity. We solve problems by adding more options and more features uh, and more nuances to our creations. Um, there's a huge need to understand the desired impact that each improvement or investment will have on the business at the more micro level, um, to, to Scott's point here. Uh, otherwise, you can end up just putting time and effort toward every idea, suggestion, or request that comes about with no idea whether it's helping or hurting the business, uh, especially if the culture and the process of the organization continue to push output as the measure of success. Um, the rigor needed to support that micro-level understanding uh, will surely suffer. Uh, at Route, we track all of our product work in Airtable. Uh, and then all of the execution work in JIRA. And in Airtable, we do this in a table called opportunities where each row is a separate opportunity where we uh, try to document a clear background summary of how the opportunity was identified, other contextual data that are important to consider. Uh, we, we put together a clear list of the outcomes we're hoping to achieve with whatever solution we end up implementing based on the opportunity. And then, uh, you know, links to discovery work like Lucid Charts, Google Docs, Figma Designs, Tech Approaches, et cetera. And then one of the most important parts is, is making sure that we're listing uh, in the product requirements, you know, what do we need? What do we have to include to measure whether the outcomes were reached? And what plan do we have after the feature is released or after the opportunities solutions are released to be able to go back and tell whether or not we're actually reaching the desired outcomes? Um, it really is a lot more work, or at least a different type of work, uh, to understand the desired outcomes and ensure that we have a clear way to measure our success toward those outcomes over time. Um, but whether gauging success by the micro outcomes or the macro outcomes or output, uh, they both have value depending on where you are in the organization, and that value will ebb and flow based on product maturity. Um, wrapping up, I just want to talk quickly about autonomy versus alignment. Um, on one hand, autonomy can help product teams feel connected. Uh, it empowers teams to make a positive contribution to the organization that they can take primary ownership of. It reduces the drag of, uh, the drag of needing approval. Uh, it can create a deeper level of product expertise across both product and engineering. Um, and as product professionals, we're accountable to the desired outcomes we identify in the opportunities that we're addressing. But absent the ability to make significant decisions, uh, guiding the solutions that we implement, that connection and that ownership and that expertise can start to fade away. But on the other hand, alignment 
helps pr uh, product managers prioritize opportunities a little more easily. Um, it provides a level of cohesion in the product and in the user experience, and it reduces redundant or conflicting efforts as you scale up different teams that are more focused. Uh, it reduces unintended consequences, uh, technically speaking, or, or user experience-wise of, of different solutions getting released, and, and helps turn what might otherwise be assumptions around execution into validated truths as we're aligned and as we're talking about the opportunities that we're working on. Uh, as I've mentioned, over, the, over time, the number of uh, teams at Route has grown into more areas of focus, deeper areas of focus. We've gone from 2 p.m.s to 7 p.m.s. And with 2 p.m.s, it's much more easy to stay aligned as an organization. Um, all teams can easily work together on the big top-down objectives. Uh, we work toward macro outcomes like building the Shopify integration or releasing V1 of the mobile app into the market. Um, keeping merchant A, our biggest merchant, happy by fixing a bug or releasing a small feature to keep them happy, uh, or building basic um, automations for the claims process. Um, but as we scale up to 7 p.m.s, each team has that deeper level of focus, and um, we start working more toward micro outcomes like reducing the time to revenue for Shopify merchants, or increasing mobile app weekly active users by 5% or increasing the percent of fully automated claims by 10%. So it's a lot more micro. And it gets really interesting when those focused team initiatives start to conflict with each other, or they get blocked by dependencies, or they don't necessarily contribute to the organizational objectives, but are subjectively very important to the team that's working on them. Um, too much autonomy at a certain level makes it much harder to answer questions like who's working on what, and when will this be released? And what's the scope of what's getting released um, without some significant process in place, which can always be a drag. An example of this at Route is how our product organization communicates with the revenue side of the business. Um, revenue needs to consider what can we sell and how can we build enablement materials so that we're selling it quickly, quick, or correctly. And when should we draft our go-to-market strategy? And can I tell those WooCommerce merchants that the bug has been resolved? Um, this is obviously much easier and cheaper to do uh, conversationally when you have two people giving comprehensive updates in a weekly meeting. Uh, it's a full list of what's being worked on and it's more sort of from the hip time commitments based on the conversation that's happening in that meeting. It's, it's a more conversational interaction. Um, but as the team grows, we have to figure out how we can create a shared understanding across the organization without just adding more meetings and more people? How can we make answering product questions more self-serve? Uh, at Route, we're uh, currently trying to standardize our opportunity format in Airtable so that it's easy to consume and making sure that we're keeping records up to date with scope and delivery dates. Um, how can we make the best use of everyone's time? We do need to communicate, but how can we minimize our meeting time and alternate between product leading and revenue leading to make sure that the conversation uh, isn't too one-sided. Uh, keeping conversations on high priority topics that weren't discussion as a group, as opposed to getting too in the weeds in those meetings. Um, how can we articulate dependencies uh, and provide some level of predictability so that sales understands or rev understands why they can't sell it yet or why it's not coming out or why you told me three weeks ago it was gonna be released in two weeks, but now other priorities have jumped ahead. Um, we do that by breaking opportunities into smaller chunks uh, that have more micro level outcomes and each opportunity has one product lead and one team assigned so that 
there's a clear owner of everything. Um, you know, maybe these are the, be the best solutions, maybe they're not, but that's sort of the point of the whole talk. And um, I know I've talked probably really fast and gone through this uh, pretty quick, but I hope that this has been a useful experience for you guys and um, you know, whatever that looks like. And my hope, as I stated earlier, is that as you trudge forward through the mess, that you take good notes um, and go tell your stories because um, we all want to hear them. I think they're valuable. Uh, so I think that's it for me uh, if we want to jump into QA or Q&A. Thanks, John. Really great stuff. Does anyone have any questions for John that they want to ask? I have a question. So I really like the idea of this. And if for me, if I had to summarize my takeaway is think about why I'm making decisions rather than just making them. What do you do personally to make time to do that introspection and to make sure that you really are understanding what you're doing? Uh, yeah, the great question. And I, and I think, you know, that that's a great takeaway, um, you know, for, for the record, as far as I'm concerned, I think, um, you know, for me, how, how I sort of make time for that introspection is by actively trying to really understand the environment that I'm in. And there's a myriad of ways that you can do that. But for me, one of the most important things is making sure that I'm communicating, uh, effectively with all of the different parts of the business that I have some regular interactions with, you know, the founders, if there's a lot of direction coming from the founding team, if there's a lot of direction coming from the rev side of the business that I'm having regular conversations with those team members. And that can be one-on-ones, it can be group meetings, whatever it is. Um, having, having a good relationship with the engineering team that I work with and making sure that they understand the why and, that I'm talking to other product managers regularly. It just, for me, there, again, there's a lot of different ways to sort of address that. But for me, it's, it's all about that good, effective communication where we have a shared understanding of what's happening. We're using um, the best language possible because I think language is the, the best tool that we have as human beings. And, and by, you know, doing that correctly and making agreements, I think, you know, it, it really gives me a better way to, to, properly assess the why so that then I can understand the conflict or the dilemma that's that I need to make a call on. Does that answer your question, Aaron? Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Anyone else have anything else? There was a question on the, uh, the chat. Yeah, let's see. From Albert. From Albert. I'd love to hear how they went about identifying the most impactful opportunities. Uh, how, how Route went about identifying the most impactful opportunities. Um, I think, you know, to be totally transparent and frank, I think the most impactful opportunities early on were at that more macro outcome level. And, and we just, we, we know the direction we want to get to, and we know that in order to have this, you know, transformational e-commerce experience, we have to have an app that, you know, provides some utility to users so that we can start to draw them into the ecosystem. And so a lot of our efforts early on have been just sort of that skateboard example where, you know, we're, we're getting wood and we're getting 
you know, wheels and trucks and just putting it all together. And that looks like shipping an app where we're able to track things on a map and building a web interface for that. And then building the e-commerce integrations that we need to get order data and to allow people to purchase um, package protection and then having a claims process. And really those were the most impactful opportunities early on. And, and now from there, um, we've, we've started to set up enough signals that we're starting to get a lot more clarity on where the friction exists in those core experiences. And now it's about polishing those and then layering in those more advanced sort of uh, longer term vision uh, opportunities over time. Uh, and it's kind of a general answer there, but uh, does that answer your question? If not, uh, feel free to reach out, Albert, and we can address it. Um, John is always available. So if you guys ever have any more questions, feel free to connect with him and, and he's available on Slack as well. Hopefully for sure. <laughs> A big thanks to John Perkins for presenting and again to Route for hosting the event. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon and we'll see you at one of our next events.